1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Here, Captain Edwin A. Brown of Company E was instantly killed. There is in my mind, as I write, the spectacle of a young officer, with uplifted sword, shouting in a loud imperative voice the order i had given him. A bullet passes into his open mouth, and the voice is forever silent. I urged the left wing forward with all possible speed. We climbed the fence, moved across the open space, and pushed on into the cornfield, the three right companies of the regiment were crowded into an open field on the right-hand side of the turnpike. Thus we pushed up the hill to the middle of the cornfield. At this juncture the companies of the right wing received a deadly fire from the woods on their right. To save them, Colonel Bragg, with a quickness and coolness equal to the emergency, caused them to change front and form behind the turnpike fence from whence they returned the fire of the enemy. Meanwhile, I halted the left wing and ordered them to lie down on the ground. The bullets began to clip through the corn, thick, almost as hail. Shells burst around us, the fragments tearing up the ground, and canister whistled through the corn above us. Lieutenant Bode of Company F was instantly killed, and Lieutenant John Tickner was badly wounded. Sergeant Major Howard J. Huntington now came running to me through the corn. He said, Major, Colonel Bragg wants to see you, quick, at the turnpike. I ran to the fence in time to hear Bragg say, Major, I am shot, before he fell upon the ground. While this took place on the turnpike, our companies were marching forward through the thick corn on the right of a long line of battle. At the front edge of the cornfield was a low rail fence. Before the corn were open fields, beyond which was a strip of woods surrounding a little church the Dunkard Church. As we appeared at the edge of the corn, a long line of men in butternut and gray rose up from the ground. Simultaneously, the hostile battle lines opened a tremendous fire upon each other. Men, I cannot say, fell. They were knocked out of the ranks by dozens. Major Rufus R. Dawes, 6th Wisconsin Infantry, Gibbons Brigade.
0: Major Matdale, commanding the right wing, came to me at my station at the center and reported that nearly every man of the right wing had been shot down, killed or wounded, and not a man would be left alive unless we withdrew at once. The roar all about us of nearby small arms and of artillery more distant was so deafening that the Major, in making his report, had to place his mouth to my ear. Just as he concluded, and while we still were standing breast to breast, he with his right side and i with my left towards the enemy he was stricken by a bullet straightened stiffened and fell backwards upon the ground dead immediately thereafter scarcely a minute captain john r woodward in command of the left wing came to me with a like report as to that wing as the regiment no longer had the ability to advance or resist attack effectively, and in addition, as its line of retreat was in momentary danger of being cut off, I directed Captain Woodward to retire the left, and myself proceeded to withdraw the right wing. Falling back to the southward limit of the corn patch, I directed the few who had emerged from the corn to rally upon a squad of perhaps thirty men who were gathered about a Confederate battle flag, And resisting the advance of federal infantry while I remained to forward on others as they might appear from the corn. Just as the few started for the battle flag mentioned, Captain Woodward cried out substantially, the flags, the flags, where are the flags? The bears are shot down and I'll get them. And suiting the action to the word, rushed back into the corn to recover them. He had proceeded but a short distance when he came face to face with the advancing enemy and returned without them. Lieutenant Colonel Philip A. Work, First Texas Infantry, Wafford's Brigade.
1: everyone. Welcome to Episode 192 of our Civil War Podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last episode, we talked about the start of the fighting at the Battle of Antietam on the morning of September 17, 1862, as the Army of the Potomac, commanded by George McClellan, began its attack against Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia.
1: North of Sharpsburg, fighting Joe Hooker's 1st Corps, opened the battle by starting to advance south toward the Dunker Church. The 1st Corps would open the battle alone, here on the northern part of the field, since Hooker had failed to coordinate its attack with Joseph Mansfield's nearby 12th Corps. As hundreds of shells from the opposing batteries shrieked and roared overhead, Hooker's Federals encountered stiff resistance from Stonewall Jackson's Confederates.
0: Of Hooker's three divisions, James Ricketts advanced on the left through the Woods and the eastern portion of the cornfield, while Abner Doubleday advanced on the right down the Hagerstown Turnpike and through the western part of the cornfield. Behind Ricketts and Doubleday, George Meade's division remained in reserve.
1: Last week, we looked at Ricketts' part of Hooker's attack, And we saw how the piecemeal, uncoordinated advances by Ricketts brigades ran into fierce resistance from the rebels who were positioned at the southern edge of the cornfield and near the east woods. As you guys will recall, at the end of last week's show, the fighting in this area was stalemated. But even while that ferocious combat was going on, Doubleday was advancing southward just to the right of Ricketts. And that's what we'll look at now. That is Doubleday's part of First Corps' assault that morning.
0: As Rich just said, even as Ricketts' division was engaged in the eastern half of the cornfield and in the east woods, fighting erupted immediately to the west, where Abner Doubleday's division launched the other half of First Corps' attack. The spearhead of this advance was a brigade of Westerners led by John Gibbon. These Wisconsin and Indiana regiments had recently been dubbed the Iron Brigade and were earning a reputation as one of the Army of the Potomac's hardest fighting formations.
1: As Doubleday's troops emerged from a stand of trees, later labeled the North Woods, more than a dozen Confederate guns commanded by John Pelham atop Nicodemus Heights opened a furious and deadly fire on the advancing Federals. The fire of those Rebel cannon on Hooker's right flank was joined by S.D. Lee's batteries down near the Dunker Church. Hooker's guns blasted back, firing from a ridge behind the Northwoods. The big 20-pounder rifles across the Antietam added their voice to the Union counterbattery fire. A Federal officer later recalled how, quote, Each discharge was, at first, discernible, but after a little grew so rapid from all the guns brought into play from both sides that it became one prolonged roar.
0: Despite the Union Army's overall advantage in artillery at Antietam, here as elsewhere on this day, the Confederates' skillful use of their guns gained them the edge and firepower where it counted most, that is, at the actual point of contact between the two armies." Here, Hooker felt obliged to divert four of his batteries to protect his vulnerable right flank and duel with Pelham's guns atop Nicodemus Heights. And in these early morning hours, Hooker's other five batteries were overmatched by S.D. Lee's rebel guns in their excellent position down near the Dunker Church and by Stonewall Jackson's divisional artillery.
1: In this contest of artillery versus infantry, McClellan's heavy parrot rifles over on the heights east of Antietam Creek, which were firing at or near their effective range, couldn't make a decisive difference there on the northern part of the battlefield. But those big Federal guns nonetheless took a toll, to be sure. A bursting shell from one of them stunned Confederate Division Commander John R. Jones so badly that he had to be replaced by Brigadier General William E. Stark and the big Union cannons' counter-battery fire would cause S.D. Lee to label Antietam a, quote, artillery hell for his rebel guns posted near the Dunker Church. Nevertheless, on this part of the battlefield, the Confederates repeatedly gained a crucial edge by achieving tactical artillery superiority against the Federal infantry.
0: At any rate, the Iron Brigade, taking its losses from the Confederate cannon fire, pushed southward on both sides of the Hagerstown Turnpike, with half the line passing through Farmer Miller's Orchard and into the cornfield, and the other half into the field of clover running along the western side of the road. Battery B of the 4th U.S. Artillery moved up in direct support, and limbering in the Miller barnyard. And just as a footnote, but it just so happened that Battery B had been John Gibbon's old command in the pre-war U.S. Army.
1: A Confederate staff officer, from his vantage point in front of the West Woods, watched as the Yankees advanced with a slow, measured tread, their bayonet-tipped muskets held out before them. The rebel later remembered how, quote, The Federals, in apparent double battle line, were moving toward us at charge bayonet, common time, a show at once fearful and entrancing.
0: The Iron Brigade's fame as one of the Army of the Potomac's best combat outfits was just beginning. Antietam was its third battle, and on this morning it tangled with one of the most storied formations in Lee's army, the Stonewall Brigade. Jackson's original command was now being led by Colonel Andrew Grigsby.
1: Grigsby had the Stonewall Brigade and a 2nd Brigade of Virginians under his command, lying down in the clover west of the Turnpike. As the Yankees approached, his men rose up and delivered a devastating volley that shredded the advancing Federals' right flank. Gibbon quickly sent over reinforcements, and the two battle lines here slugged it out until finally the Federals' superior numbers began to tell. With more than half his men down, Grigsby's command fell back into the west woods and took cover behind trees and rocky ledges. There on the far side of the Hagerstown Turnpike, as the right wing of the Iron Brigade continued to trade shots with Grigsby's rebels, Doubleday pushed forward a second brigade in support to Gibbon's right, and as a result, the Federals gained a foothold in the northern part of the West Woods.
0: While that fighting was going on there on the far side of the Hagerstown Turnpike, the rest of the Iron Brigade advanced through the western part of the cornfield to meet a surprise blast of musketry from Confederates in the pasture beyond, similar to the gunfire that had decimated Duryea's brigade of Federals earlier.
1: The blast of gunfire that hit the Iron Brigade here is what's described in the scene in that quote I read from Major Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin at the top of the show. Dawes recalled that, quote, "'As we appeared at the edge of the corn, a long line of men in butternut and gray rose up from the ground. Simultaneously, the hostile battle lines opened a tremendous fire upon each other. Men, I cannot say, fell, they were knocked out of the ranks by dozens. But we jumped over the fence and pushed on, loading, firing, and shouting as we advanced.'
0: This combat was taking place at the same time the fighting we talked about in the last show, along the edge of the cornfield to the east, reached its peak. A northern newspaper correspondent watching the battle wrote, quote, We could see them press our men and hear their shrill yells of triumph. Then our columns in blue would move forward, driving them back with loud, deep-mouthed, sturdy cheers. End quote. To a southern newspaper reporter, the storm of musketry and cannon fire, quote, "...sounded upon the ear like the rolling of a thousand distant drums."
1: As the Iron Brigade continued to push forward, Confederate Brigadier General William Stark, filling in as division commander for the stunned J.R. Jones, met the crisis by leading a counterattack with his two remaining brigades. Those 1,150 Confederates, from Virginia, Alabama, and Louisiana, charged out of the West Woods, angling toward the turnpike and the cornfield. The Yankees turned to meet this threat, and in places the battle lines were scarcely 30 yards apart. This was point-blank range, and even in the choking gun smoke that quickly blanketed the battlefield, a shot here could hardly miss. On both sides, the men were loading and firing their muskets as fast as possible. Describing the chaos and almost unbearable tension, Major Dawes later said, quote, "...men are falling in their places or running back into the corn. The soldier who is shooting is furious in his energy. The soldier who is shot looks around for help with an imploring agony of death on his face." The men are loading and firing with demoniacal fury and shouting and laughing hysterically.
0: The Confederate counterattack halted the Federal advance, but at a fearful cost in casualties. Stark was hit by three bullets and mortally wounded. The Stonewall Brigade's Colonel Grigsby took charge of the division. He was its third commander in an hour. Losses among the rebel field officers were so great that brigades here were being led by captains and regiments by lieutenants.
1: Realizing that the battered Confederates couldn't hold the gains that had been won in the costly counterattack, Grigsby gave the order to fall back and the shattered division of rebels took shelter in the West Woods.
0: The progress to 1st Corps' assault was being communicated to McClellan's headquarters by signal flag, and a little before 7 a.m., Little Mac was heard to remark, All goes well. Hooker is driving them.
1: George McClellan had established his headquarters on high ground east of Antietam Creek at the house of prominent local farmer, Philip Pry. The Pry House was some two miles from where the brutal fighting was taking place over across the creek on the northern part of the battlefield, in the cornfield, and along the Hagerstown Pike. Little Mac and his close confidant, 5th Corps commander Fitzjohn Porter, peered at the distant scene through telescopes that had been set up for their viewing pleasure. Little Mac's aide, David Strother, said, quote, General McClellan stood in a soldierly attitude, intently watching the battle, and smoking with utmost apparent calmness, conversing with surrounding officers, and giving his orders in the most quiet undertones. Everything was as quiet and punctilious as a drawing-room ceremony.
0: According to McClellan's plan, such as it was, as described in his preliminary report of the battle, the progress to the north by I Corps ought to have been the signal to order Burnside to move against the rebels' other flank. And depending on how you decipher Little Mac's plan, such as it was, Sumner's Second Corps ought to have been ready to push forward in the center but except for sending a message to Burnside to be prepared to advance, McClellan did nothing to capitalize on Hooker's gains.
1: Bull Sumner had roused his Second Corps troops early, issued them 80 cartridges, twice the usual number, and had them ready to march at first light. Sumner was expecting to receive orders first thing Wednesday morning, telling him to cross the Antietam, either at the Middle Bridge to threaten the Confederate center, or at the upper bridge to support Hooker. But when no orders came, he went to McClellan's headquarters to find out what was going on. Little Mac, however, couldn't be bothered to see Sumner. While Little Mac and his buddy Fitzjohn Porter watched the battle from the backyard of the pry house, Sumner was left to stew out on the front porch.
0: By making no move early on Wednesday morning to coordinate the movements and actions of the different parts of his army, it seems George McClellan was content to passively let events unfold, as they would, and shape his command decisions. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee was anticipating events. Observing that the Federals opposite his right flank were making no threatening moves toward the lower bridge, Lee called on Longstreet to dispatch the brigade of George Tighe Anderson from its position in front of Sharpsburg to the northern part of the battlefield to aid Stonewall Jackson.
1: On Wednesday morning, the divisions of Lafayette McClaws and Richard H. Anderson had reached Sharpsburg from Harper's Ferry, so Lee knew those newly arrived troops could now serve as his reserve. Lee, though, did let McClaws and Anderson's exhausted men rest for a bit before calling upon them and putting them into the line. But soon after Tyke Anderson's brigade was ordered north to aid Stonewall, Lee did order another command from the right, John Walker's small division, to also march north to support Stonewall.
0: In contrast to George McClellan, Robert E. Lee, in every instance on this day, would anticipate the need for reinforcements and have them precisely where they were required at precisely the right moment. Little Mac, on the other hand, in every instance failed to coordinate the movements and actions of his army in order to reinforce a success or salvage a failure.
1: And there was a similar pattern in how the two commanders were served by their subordinates. For example, there was the contrasting performance of the two generals called on to march to the sound of the guns on September 17th. While the rest of the Confederates at Harper's Ferry had set out for Sharpsburg, the men of Major General A.P. Hill's Light Division had been left behind to finish the task of paroling the thousands of captured Yankees. But at 6.30 a.m. on the morning of the 17th, Hill received Lee's order to march to the battlefield. A.P. Hill had his men on the road within the hour and drove them unsparingly toward Sharpsburg.
0: Darius Couch's division of Franklin's 6th Corps had, on McClellan's orders, set off early Wednesday morning toward Harper's Ferry. Little Mac never explained the reason behind this movement, perhaps because he had no good reason for it, but at any rate, Couch had marched perhaps five miles when a courier caught up to him in Pleasant Valley. McClellan had changed his mind, and Couch was to turn around and rejoin the rest of the army."
1: Couch was called on to make a march that day, no longer than A.P. Hill's, and if anything, Couch had a head start. The noise of battle reached both generals, and presumably the sound of the guns, as well as their orders, communicated equal urgency. But unlike A.P. Hill, Couch set a pace that was so undemanding that everyone in his division could keep up, and no one straggled. And they all arrived at the battlefield five hours after they were needed.
0: Okay, so back on the battlefield, even before Stark's counterattack bought time for the embattled Confederate left flank, it was clear to Stonewall Jackson that he would have to commit the last reserves he had on hand in order to prevent a breakthrough by the Federals of Hooker's First Corps.
1: And so the call went out to John B. Hood's division, which was back in the West Woods behind the Dunker Church. You guys will recall how Hood's men had tangled with Meade's Pennsylvanians late the previous evening, but after the fighting had petered out with nightfall, Hood had sought and received permission from Stonewall to pull his troops out of line so that they would have the chance, on Wednesday morning, to cook a hot meal for the first time in days. Jackson had given his okay to this move, but told Hood his men would have to come running if he called for them and now that call had arrived.
0: The commissary wagons hadn't found Hood's men until shortly before daylight, and then the only issue was flour. When the call to arms sounded, the men were baking hoe cakes on their ramrods, and they bolted down what they could of the half-baked dough as they snatched up their muskets and fell in.
1: The men of Hood's division had earned a reputation as some of the toughest fighters in Robert E. Lee's army. Col. William T. Wofford's Texas Brigade, which had once been Hood's own command, was comprised of the 1st, 4th, and 5th Texas and the 18th Georgia. Then there was South Carolina's Hampton Legion and Col. Evander Law's Brigade, made up of the 2nd and 11th Mississippi, 4th Alabama, and 6th North Carolina. It was 7 a.m. when the 2,300 men of Hood's division came boiling out of the West Woods.
0: Hood's troops took the place of the badly battered fragments of Lawton's division that were fighting desperately from the pasture south of the cornfield. Hood's rebels made their counterattack on a broad front, extending all the way from the turnpike on the left to the East Woods on the right.
1: After allowing Lawton's troops to withdraw through their ranks, Hood's men fired a terrific volley that hit the Federals, said Major Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin, quote, like a scythe running through our ranks.
0: That initial massive volley by Hood's troops knocked the Federal first line almost bodily back into the cornfield. As the Confederates raised the rebel yell and surged forward, the Yankees fled back to the corn. The 6th Wisconsin's color-bearer went down, the 4th one hit that morning, and Dawes snatched up the flag. He swung it around and around over his head, trying to rally his men. He wrote later that in that moment he gave up all hope of life, since he knew soldiers invariably focused their fire on the enemy's flags.
1: George Smalley, the newspaper correspondent who had attached himself to Hooker's headquarters, noted that with Hood's counterattack rolling forward quote, "in 10 minutes the fortune of the day seemed to have changed" end quote. the right wing of Hood's assault overpowered those of Ricketts' Federals who were still in the eastern half of the cornfield and in the east woods sending them flying for the rear the misfortunes of Ricketts' division were therefore now complete as it had suffered almost 40% casualties and an even higher toll from shirking and straggling. Ricketts admitted that of his 3,150 men who had started the battle that morning, he doubted just then if more than 300 were still with their colors.
0: With Wafford's and Law's troops driving forward through the bloody wreckage of dead and wounded from the earlier fighting, One of Stonewall's aides reached Hood just then with a request for an appraisal of the situation. Hood replied, Tell General Jackson, unless I get reinforcements, I must be forced back, but I am going on while I can.
1: Now, Hooker finally called on Mansfield's 12th Corps for help. Too late to keep up the momentum of 1st Corps' advance, but perhaps in time to prevent its defeat. Until Mansfield's troops arrived on the scene, though, Hooker would have to depend on his own reserves, George Meade's two brigades. It wasn't Joe Hooker's style to command from the rear, and on his big white horse he was a conspicuous figure as he rode to and fro, pushing men and guns into the battle. Hooker's style of leadership made him visible to the men of the 1st Corps, and no doubt inspired them but the Confederates took notice of him as well. At one point, the cry went down the firing line of the 11th Mississippi and Law's Brigade to shoot the man on the white horse, but try as they might, the Mississippians couldn't hit the man on the white horse. And so, for the moment at least, fighting Joe Hooker continued to live a charmed life.
0: Then the Texas Brigade was ordered to charge. The enemy was on the opposite side of the stubble field in the cornfield. As we passed where Lawton's brigade had stood, there was a complete line of dead Georgians, as far as I could see. Just before we reached the cornfield, General Hood rode up to Colonel Carter, commanding the 4th Texas Regiment, my regiment, and told him to front his regiment to the left to protect the flank. This he did, and he made a charge directly to the west." We were stopped by a pike fence on both sides. It would have been certain death to climb that fence. Hayes' Louisiana brigade had been in on our left and had been driven out. Some of their men were still with us at this fence. One of them was a better soldier than I was. I was lying on the ground, shooting through the fence about the second rail. He stood up and shot right over the fence. He was shot through his left hand and through the heart. As he fell on me, I pushed him off and saw that 7th Louisiana was on his cap. The 5th Texas, 1st Texas, and 18th Georgia, which was the balance of my brigade, went straight into the cornfield, and when they struck, the corn blades rose like a whirlwind and the air was full. Private Lawrence A. Daffin, 4th Texas Infantry, Wofford's Brigade
1: We knew but little of what was going on beyond our immediate vicinity. We were in the hottest of hornets' nests, and had all we could do to attend to what was in our front, while the sounds of battle reached our ears from all directions. Bullets, shot, and shell whistled and screamed around us. Wounded men came to the rear in large numbers, and the six Napoleon guns of Battery B hurled forth destruction as the enemy, in increased numbers, rushed forward to capture the guns. He seemed to be making headway against our troops on the cornfield to our left, and the piece on the pike was firing in that direction. In the midst of this pandemonium, I happened to look at this gun, and noticed that the cannoneers had carelessly allowed the elevating screw to run down, and every time the piece was fired, its elevation was increased, until now its missiles were harmlessly thrown high over the heads of the enemy in its front. I yelled to the gunner to run up his elevating screw, but in the din he could not hear me. I jumped from my horse, rapidly ran up the elevating screw, until the muzzle pointed almost into the ground in front, and then nodded to the gunner to pull his lanyard. The discharge carried away most of the fence in front of it and produced great destruction in the enemy's ranks, as did the subsequent discharges. The enemy got so close to the battery in his desperate attempts to capture it that the pieces were double-shotted with canister, before which whole ranks went down, and after we got possession of the field, dead men were found piled on top of each other. Brigadier General John Gibbon, Brigade Commander, Army of the Potomac
0: As George Meade's two brigades of Pennsylvanians moved up, Law's Confederates in the northern part of the cornfield caught one of the brigades in the flank as it was crossing Farmer Miller's pasture north of the cornfield. The rebel musketry wrecked two of the Yankee regiments, but the remaining two held their ground and fought back. Federal artillery in the pasture fired canister, trying to repel the Confederates, but the gunners took such heavy casualties in return that soon the cannon were silenced, and the combat here ended up being a vicious small arms battle between the opposing infantrymen.
1: The fighting was equally bitter just to the west, where, along the Hagerstown Turnpike, part of Hood's division was engaged in a brutal slugging match with Gibbon's Iron Brigade and a brigade of New Yorkers, led by Brigadier General Marcena Patrick. With the opposing lines firing at point-blank range and the gun smoke so thick that nothing could be seen of the enemy except their battle flags, a Federal officer shouted, Shoot down that color! at which one of his men shouted back, Damn the color! Shoot the men under it!
0: The fourth color bearer lost by South Carolina's Hampton Legion was the unit's major, J.H. Dingle, who picked up the flag, cried out, Legion, follow your colors, then rushed to the fence bordering the turnpike, where he was killed instantly.
1: The six guns of Battery B 4th U.S. Artillery were right in the midst of this fight, and it lost so many men that half of the crews serving the cannon were soon made up of infantry volunteers. The scene with Gibbon running up the elevating screw, in that quote I read a moment ago, took place here at this time.
0: As Hood's men continued to press their assault, Battery B's guns fired double rounds of canister right in the faces of the attacking rebels. This was a desperate tactic, and to prevent a burst barrel, the powder charge attached to the second round was supposed to be knocked off, but one of the infantry volunteers couldn't be bothered with such niceties, and he continued ramming home full double charges. With every shot, a massive recoil sent the gun bounding backward, but each time it was dragged forward again to continue firing, and incredibly, the gun barrel didn't burst.
1: Under this withering hail of musketry and cannon fire, Hood's counterattack in the western part of the cornfield finally stalled but the 1st Texas, meanwhile, charged ahead, unsupported. Its commander reported that, quote, it became impossible to restrain the men, and they rushed forward, pressing the enemy close until we had advanced a considerable distance ahead of both the right and left wings of the brigade, End quote. As the men of the 1st Texas charged ahead, Meade's Federals were waiting, muskets resting on the rails of a fence at the northern edge of the cornfield and when the Texans came into view, the Pennsylvanians' fire simply tore them apart. Eight color-bearers were shot down, and the Texans' beloved battle flag was lost in the confusion. Two companies were wiped out to the last man. Their reckless charge that carried them to the northern edge of the cornfield cost the first Texas 186 of its 226 men, a staggering loss rate of over 82% and perhaps 20 minutes of combat. The first Texas's losses at Antietam earned it the tragic distinction of suffering the highest casualty rate of any unit on either side during a Civil War battle.
0: It was about half past seven now, and the opposing commands of Stonewall Jackson and Joe Hooker were spent and shattered. Each general had held back a single brigade, Jackson to guard Pelham's guns on Nicodemus Heights, And Hooker to guard the batteries dueling with Pelham from the Poffenburger farm. Both had thrown every other man they had into the fight.
1: The Federals had a foothold in the northern portion of the West Woods, and some of Hood's men occupied a part of the East Woods. But other than that, little had changed from the positions each side held at first light. Jackson had met force with equal force and the two sides were about where they had been when the killing began at dawn.
0: Hooker's first Corps, attacking alone, lost 30% of its numbers. More than three-quarters of its 2,600 casualties were in the divisions of Ricketts and Doubleday. The Corps was all but used up and finished fighting for the day. A wounded Pennsylvanian later recalled, quote, "...hundreds were pouring back from the field, many wounded, some frightened." scores unhurt but hurrying away to a safer region.
1: The picture was similar in the West Woods behind the Confederates front line. Generals and their staffs were trying desperately to reorganize shattered units and find officers to command them. In the contest against Hooker's First Corps, Stonewall Jackson's casualties came to three thousand men. Lawton's division fighting in the pasture south of the cornfield and on the Mumma farm lost almost half its men. Lawton himself was wounded, and one of his brigade commanders was dead and another wounded, and three-quarters of his regimental commanders were down.
0: J.R. Jones and Hood's divisions lost 40 and 60 percent of their numbers, respectively, and their losses in field officers were even higher. One of the brigades in Stark's counterattack saw nine of its officers killed in the cornfield. "'The 2nd Mississippi lost every one of its regimental officers "'and nearly every company commander "'and ended the fighting led by a 2nd lieutenant.'"
1: Hood's division had, quite simply, been shot to pieces, and back in the cover of the West Woods, when he was asked where his division was, he replied simply, "'Dead on the field.'" Stonewall Jackson had Jeb Stewart's horsemen busily rounding up stragglers, but he directed the officer in charge not to disturb any of Hood's men if they were found behind the lines. Even by Stonewall's demanding standards, Hood's men had done enough fighting that day.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is the volume on Antietam in Time Life's Voices of the Civil War series of books.
1: This series of books is where we get most of the longer first-person quotes that we share with you guys as part of the battle episodes on the podcast. This Voices of the Civil War series uh, by Time Life has just a wealth of first-person accounts by soldiers and civilians as they share their experiences relating to major campaigns and battles, and we are big fans of these books. Besides the personal recollections, each book also has maps, sketches, photographs, and artifacts that really help what you're reading come alive.
0: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: And here's a piece of breaking news. We've just released members episode number 52, Stonewall Jackson at Harper's Ferry, part the first.
0: As promised, we're going to use a couple of members episodes to take a closer look at the siege of Harper's Ferry.
1: Yep, and we uh, want to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Carol, Matt, and Deborah.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, A History Podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Antietam. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.